That whole year was really intense. Hi, this is Agan Wukash, and this is Catching the Next Wave podcast, where we discuss the future of design and much more. Our today's guest is Yuan Wang, a leadership coach for creative professionals. She's the founder of Yuan Studio with the mission to unleash the creative power of women and people of color through transformative coaching and creative expressions. She especially supports women of color to play a bigger role in their design career and life. In 2018, as one of the very few women of color design leads at Airbnb, she created a successful mentorship program to support the growth of emerging women design leaders and later on scaled the program to benefit 500 plus design teammates. Besides Airbnb, she also worked at Twitter, Mozilla and Lenovo. Quite she, a range. Yeah, right. <laughs> So next to all of this, she teaches a professional design practice at California College of the Arts, and she writes the weekly newsletter Morning Pages that shares inspirations to help people cultivate creativity and fulfillment. And she recently started an amazing resource, a collection of books written by women and people of color. And I'm super honored and proud that my Umami Strategy found a place on that list. Yuen, so awesome to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Yuan, you originate from China, right? Yes. And uh, you studied there and then you moved to the US. Could you tell a bit about this move and how your perspective changed? What were the things that surprised you or were shocking or all these kind of things? So my journey from China to United States, it was definitely a very profound one because that was the first time I stepped out of any country, like outside of my home country. So it was very much shock for me. But the reason I wanted to study abroad was I was very interested in user experience when I was in college, even though I did not major in any of those major. And there wasn't actually a lot of resource or educational infrastructure about this field at all. It was relatively new outside of China, like in the United States, even it was still just getting started. So yeah, I was just really intrigued by some of the problems they're solving and what they're trying to do. And my major in college was information systems. It was more technical. And after studying it for four years, I realized that, I okay, that might not be what I'm really interested. But with that, I find the field, which is information architecture. That was kind of a bridge for me to get into user experience and understand the value of design in this digital world. And I spent a lot of time practicing and learning on my own. Yeah, using that as a bridge to land a student research position at Lenovo. That was my first role in user experience. Um, I was a user researcher and uh, working on their smartphone at a time. That kind of got me accumulated some experience and prepared me to apply for grad school um, in the United States. And yeah, I got admitted to go to Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So it's still one of the top schools uh, majoring in human-computer interaction. And I was just very fortunate that I, I was able to go there and study and meet a lot of people. And I think that really marked a strong foundation for the start of my career in design mm -hmm. and from personal standpoint definitely it was a big shock because I was very stressed <laughs> when I first moved and because the program is very intense it's only one year it's one of the best programs and I just already felt like I had to survive <laughs> in that kind of environment and there is already so much insecurity with you being international students and you have never studied abroad at all and feeling that you had to find a job after one year in school and I also 
force myself to live with so native speakers. A lot of Chinese students prefer to live with other Chinese students, right? So I somehow just made the different choice and I decided to stay with some of my other classmates who are also in the same program. It's a very diverse group. One is from Peru, one is from Germany, and one is from America. So it was kind of a really interesting, different cultural mix of classmates. But at the same time, it was a big shock because I'm not used to sharing space and especially with some guys as well. So like that was all new to me and just like the partying culture and going to bars <laughs> and all of that, like was all new to me. <laughs> so it took me a while to get used to go to bars is fine. And, you know, sometimes I think in the more traditional times, like in China, when I was in college, students don't go to bars. These kind of things that I just slowly open up and really accept and understand, oh yeah, like this is how it works here. And after a few months, then I start to really feel more relaxed and get settled and then also see some of the the things that I I am actually good at. Design, you know, more hands-on work and sketching. And there's a lot of that that I think I was very interested in. I was very good at it. But I was really not able to see these things at the very beginning because I was just so caught up in trying to fit in, trying to prove myself and like not fall behind. But I think it really prepared me in the best way possible to get out there. So I'm really thankful for all that was happened because I think without it, I wouldn't feel as prepared or comfortable stepping out of grad school and then just like go straight into working full time. Yeah, jumping from the deep end, right? I've never been to China, so I know very little about the culture, but I can imagine that coming from the culture, which is Chinese, to the very individualistic American society must have been really surprising and unusual. So I I would be curious to hear what was the most unusual thing that you encountered when you first came. Most unusual I don't know, like, I think everything was kind of expected, but at the same time, it's just maybe slightly different in the way that you would expect. So it was never like, oh, this is like a completely new thing I have to learn, but it's just, okay, this is maybe how people have fun. (laughs) That's not (laughs) how I had fun in college. So my house was basically called the HCI house because all of us <laughs> all in that major. So basically it becomes the, I guess, party house for our <laughs> HCI class. party house. Yeah. So that's something I have never experienced because college parties, I guess also in Europe or in the United States, it's like a big thing. Like that's how people social and how people get to know each other. That's not a thing in China. <laughs> so, so I had never experienced that and coming out and everybody have all jam packed in this one place and have music playing and we live in a jewish neighborhood there are a lot of kids around as well so it brings a problem when you have a party in the neighborhood so we had to deal with what my roommates have to deal with police coming around knocking on your doors but it was really fun just to understand different cultures so yeah my Peruvian roommate he makes amazing food and then we always share recipes and and you can find some similarities as well like I didn't know that they actually Peruvians eat a lot of rice in their cuisine as well and that made you feel like okay yeah we're actually not that different from each other. There's actually a lot of similarities when we open up and share our backgrounds of our stories. So I think that was really beautiful. So it sounds like you adopted this kind of explorer mindset. Yeah. You know, it's going to be different. The only question is how, which reminds me, Aga, I remember when we were living in Netherlands, we had this suspicion that it's much more tricky to move to a kind of a neighboring country because you somehow automatically assume that it's going to be the same and those surprises, they hit you really hard. Mm. Rather, when you go to a different part of the globe, you know it's going to be different. And for that reason, it could be actually easier to uh, to adopt. Yeah, that's interesting. I can see that definitely from our neighboring country in China, Japan, Korea, right? In my hometown, it's just an hour from South Korea. So sometimes we go travel to those places as a family and can definitely see there's a lot of influence, historical influence and 
Vietnamese cuisine, and there's a lot of similarity, but at the same time, they have different language systems and they speak differently. And what the beauty standards are as well, like China, Taiwan, Korea, Japan, they're so similar, but at the same time, the way in which how people express themselves and see the beauty and in the world, it's also different. So yeah, there's a lot of nuance and I think mm-hmm. that's fascinating, especially for someone like me who now has gone to Western society. I think it really made me appreciate the cultural backgrounds that I had um, when I grew up in China and kind of made me realize uh, how precious these things are, like the history and all the heritage yeah, like these are the perspectives I don't think I would be able to have if I were not come out of my own home country and see it from a different angle. From the other side of the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Almost <Exactly>. literally. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. You work at Mozilla first and then at Airbnb. And there you created this mentorship program for women and people of color. And again, this might be very much my ignorance talking. But with all the discussion about the diversity and the equality in the US, and especially in companies like Mozilla and Airbnb, I was actually quite surprised to realize that there were few leads who were female and also few leads who were people of color. Could you shed a light on why is this the case? Yeah, I think it's not just one or two organizations. I think just if you were to think about the entire design industry, um, just based on what we have maybe seen collectively, I think there are a lot of women design creative professionals in the industry. But if you start to look at it by levels and experience, I think the higher level you go, the less diverse it looks right now that was reflected in some of the organizations that I have worked at. Like when on the surface, basically you see a 50-50 ratio, which is very healthy. But at the same time, and when you slice that by levels, you realize that on a higher level, like manager leads and up, that ratio becomes more skewed towards male gender. So I think the potential issue, maybe it's not about not having the right people It's about how do you create strategies and structures and culture to help the women emerging leaders to grow and to promote them, to sponsor them with opportunities, to create an environment in which they feel belong and can thrive. I think that's the part I still is a work in progress in the industry and in many organizations. And especially with COVID, based on a lot of studies, I believe, conducted last year, women are leaving the workforce three times faster than men. So there is an acceleration in terms of women exiting the workforce because sheltering place and taking care of family, all of that fall onto the women in the household. And that's a lot of work. And they are beyond stretched. So that kind of contribute even more to this imbalance within the workforce. And it's just very unfortunate to see that. There is the larger climate, and then there is the internal cultural gap that still needs to be improved. And I think there are so many talented uh, women designers. And on a weekly basis, I mentor with this great organization called ADP List, the amazing design people list.org. They're a nonprofit organization that creates a platform for design professionals to basically connect and support each other, especially in their job uh, design career development. So I do some of these weekly calls with design students or bookend graduates or just the early stage designers. Most of the people I talk to, at least when they come to me, they are either people of color, women, someone who's just like so excited to break into this industry. And there's a lot of energy, a lot of enthusiasm there. And I think that more people, especially leaders in design, like should think about how they want to give back to these people. Because I think that's kind of what 
we need to up-level and to really bring those expertise and this knowledge and insights to the younger generation of design professionals and create more opportunities. So that's what I'm trying to do as my way of doing the same type of work I was doing within Airbnb with that mentorship programs. So yeah, so now I'm just kind of doing that same type of work, but out in the open uh, with a broader range of people. So what are these companies missing that are not actively pursuing this diversity? Well, there's a lot of companies that are, I think, very much taking that very seriously, putting these pursuits of balancing their workforce and and to increase hiring and all of these things onto their like roadmaps and their company mission and goals. The tide is changing. And then I believe that what happened last year with the United States, the Black Lives Matter movements, I think it very much really bring all of these into the forefront for everybody and every organization. So I, I definitely believe that we are in a better place to bring awareness and to hold companies and leaders accountable for making these meaningful changes. And in terms of what might be missing still, I think it's just more about like cultivating that belonging when you already have these people in your organization. Because I think now it's much easier to find the people because previously it was like, oh yeah, it's a hiring issue. It's a pipeline problem. We can't find them. But now we have proven that that's not the case. There are so many directories and places where you can find professionals who are people of color, who are from underrepresented minorities. So that shouldn't be a problem anymore. So the problem is now that you bring them to your organization, can you retain and sustain them and create a culture that make them feel like they belong and they are contributions are valued? Do they have that psychological safety to be themselves? So I think that becomes the next level of challenge. And I believe that requires really the leaders and the managers to be that leader that lead by the example and to create a psychological safety for the people that's on your team. So I think that is the next big task. And then companies as an organization should be thinking about how do they create belonging from its core uh, for the culture, right? So it shouldn't be just afterthoughts. Oh, now we have these people that we have to figure out what to do about them, right? Everyone should feel safe uh, to express their opinions and thoughts and be embraced. And how do we create strategies and workflows and process to enable that? One of the things that I'm really fascinated by is the complexity theory, which uh, basically states that you get emergence, which is innovation in the more business or tech wording based on diversity with alignment. Of course, like being in Europe, we think of diversity as male, female, as maybe people from different countries, especially in Poland, this may be not as broad the picture as in the US. Anyway, but where I was going with this question is that creating a diversity that touches upon culture We all come from different cultures. We all come from different perspectives, different stories, really, right? How to embrace that as an expression of the diversity that can actually get you this emergence of new ideas? I think that's definitely a good point. Definitely, there are so many different culture backgrounds and people have very nuanced maybe ideas about how they view certain topic and subjects. That is always, I think, important, but maybe just because where I am in, like the culture within America where I'm based, just like the racial conflict and injustice, it just hits you so hard because what was happening last year and just, I was living in San Francisco and just all these demonstration and protests to, um, express the fight for justice for for George Floyd. That was hard to process for mm-hmm. a lot of people. And I think every company is really trying to t- take those stories and all of these things more and more seriously because people's lives are being lost just because the color of their skin. And that we have to 
pay attention and really we have to make changes and we have to put what we need to do as a company and to reduce discrimination and to treat people with equal respect and justice. So I think maybe it's just because now all of these are much more in our forefront. I believe that in terms of diversity, it's where the company should be really paying attention. So that is still, I believe, the most forefront topic right now in terms of diversity, because you know, diversity is basically people make the analogy. It's like diversity is being invited to a party and inclusion is being invited to dance. Hmm. And then I think belonging is basically like loving it and wanting to keep on dancing. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like, we're only just at the very beginning. So I think there's so much work there and Maybe a lot of companies right now are just kind of sending invitations and inviting people to the party right now. And there's so much work there to be done to make them feel like, yeah, I'm here. I belong here. I can see other people that are having fun here. And I think there's still a lot of work there to be done. So when you think about this goal, how would you define leadership in that context? I think in overall, um, a leader is someone who demonstrates behaviors that influence meaningful outcomes and also inspire other people to take meaningful actions. In the context of maybe diversity, I think you can be an ally if you are not someone who is from a minority or underrepresented groups, right? So you can be an ally to sponsor those people and to lead by the example to create psychological safety and build trust with the people on your team to educate yourself about all these topics that are very important and do not put on those loads for the people of color employees to explain those things to you because there's so much potential trauma that people already have to go through just by processing all of that, right? So being able to take that proactive approach to educate yourself about these topics and ask how you can help and what do they need. I think these are really the qualities and the characteristics, someone who is an ally and are willing to do the work. And I think in the broader range, a leader doesn't need to have a specific title in my opinion. I think we all can say that in many ways we are leading in our everyday life in many aspects, right? So if you are a parent, you're probably leading in many ways in your life. And then start leading from kind of where you are and think about how you can make someone else's life or also make your life just more meaningful. Create that outcome that you desire to have one step at a time, maybe. And it doesn't have to be this grand statement about, you know, how you might change the world. And I think a lot of times it's just about looking at the small things and start from there and to see how you can show up a hundred percent better. I have suddenly a memory of another guest that we had on a podcast who was using really, really the same, uh, saying the same message, using different words, April Mills, about everyone is a change agent. Mm-hmm. And she was thinking more, br- more broadly, but it's ed- indeed this leadership, not as in a position, but as in attitude. And her words are just, come with me. That's the change. Yeah, mm. yeah. I think the leader is someone who can inspire other people, right? You can rally people to come behind you and solve problems together and bring energy to the room and help others see opportunities. So there is a lot of qualities about how you serve other people. What would you say to a person who would be listening to this episode and would get really intrigued in what you are saying, but it's a person who is not high in a company, is intrigued by this, but maybe doesn't know how to start. What would be the safe well, it doesn't have to be within the comfort zone, but you know, the small mm-hmm. step that he or she could take just to 
do something in this direction? I think a lot of times the common understanding is, oh yeah, to be a leader, I had to like learn to do this, work on my confidence and improve my communications and all that. Like, I think there are truths to that, but I believe what maybe most people neglected, especially when they started, was to actually reflect on yourself. Why do you want to lead? What makes you want to be a leader? What's your why? And why are you doing the kind of work that you want to do, right? So really be clear about that intention behind it. And if it's not clear, then that may mean that there are some clarity that needs to be explored there. A lot of times, kind of some type of introspective questions or journaling could be really helpful to tease out some of those thoughts and ideas. For example, what are some of the core values that help guide you since you were a kid, right? Like a lot of times, I think our childhood sometimes influences so much more than we expected. Like there are a lot of maybe beliefs and assumptions that we have about the world are rooted in how we were educated when we grew up, like our families or our environment, our culture. So actually looking back on some of these things and really understand what is my personal story and culture story there, that can actually really help you to see this is maybe the values and that guide me through and may still hold true to me and how I want to show up just to be more self-aware so that when you do show up in front of your team as a leader, you are more aware of how people might see you and how also you want to show up and serve other people. I think that would be my suggestion, which is to look inward and to really start by asking some questions about Why do you want to lead and how would you like to lead? And then if maybe you don't have any inspirations and ideas, then another question could be, who are some of the leaders that really inspire you? What is it about them that you admire, right? What qualities or characteristics that you really made you believe that they were effective and inspiring? So that could be a good hint for some of the qualities that kind of speak to you and you may want to develop in your own development journey. That brings me to the name of your newsletter, which is called The Morning Pages, mm -hmm. which I'm guessing is inspired by the artist way. Can you tell a bit more about the story behind it? Yeah, so I named uh, my newsletter Morning Pages mainly because I'm personally also an artist. I love making art and I grew up as a kid doing a lot of drawing and painting every weekend. So it's just something that it's very close to my heart and I still want to express my artistic voice in a consistent basis. So this newsletter is aimed to curate and share inspirations in art and culture and to help other creative professionals to find fulfillment or cultivate creativity in their practice or their life, their career. And I named it after in Morning Pages because for those who don't know, Morning Pages is kind of a practice by Julian Cameron, uh, who wrote the book. And then it's basically a practice to consciously write whatever comes to your mind regularly every morning for something like three pages. No agenda, no planning, and just kind of write down whatever that's on your mind. And then you maybe not even have to read about it. It's just about the practice of getting your thoughts on paper and just this smooth flow from your head to your pages. And I think the purpose of having a practice like that is to really create this flow of communication from your mind to your hand, let your ideas flow out, basically. And it's not easy sometimes. And we as creative professionals have to maybe sometimes train ourselves to creating a habit of that. And that's something I was doing a lot, much more consistently last year when the quarantine happened in the United States. So 
not being able to go to work and have more of a morning time because you don't have to commute. So that was kind of something that I started to do in the morning. I just write them before I start my day. And I don't remember what I wrote, but but it was kind of my way to kind of cope with that change and to really feel calm. So that was pretty much the story behind it. And um, I think it's maybe a aspirational goal for myself as well to write this newsletter, feeling I don't have to maybe over editing, maybe overthinking it and to really just let what I want to say flow and just go to the, the letter. I'm not there yet. I still do a lot of editing and I still go back and forth about what I sent. But I think that's just kind of a North Star for myself or how I wish to be writing. Just to make sure this is not a daily newsletter or is it? No, it's weekly. Weekly, I I would not survive if I (laughs) sent this daily. But I I understand that might be potential misleading because my morning pages practice is probably more a daily thing. But a newsletter, definitely more of a curated Mm. weekly. And also for the people who got curious about the actual morning pages from the artist, you have to write it by hand, right? I mean, Mm. typing on a computer doesn't work that way. I don't think so. I think there's something really nice about writing by hand. I believe that it helps your mind to memorize or like really create a imprint of what you are thinking or what you're writing. At least that's for me. I, I find like if I read a book and I have some highlights, right, and I want to really memorize it or something like that, I prefer to write it down on my commonplace book. I have a book that collects a lot of these things. I write by hand. And I recently started to use some tools to maybe do a more digital version of that. And I still, I find it much harder to to leave an impression because yeah, like you highlight it and it goes into another doc and that's it. It doesn't have the same result um, as if you were to write it. Can we explore this idea for just a second? It really got me curious about that, what you call it, like a commonplace book that you are so all your thoughts from all your reading are going to one place? So a common book, place book, it's a creative practice. A lot of writers, I believe, use that to do their research or to create like a repository of basically knowledge and wisdom, different ideas. It's a practice I started doing when I was in high school because in China, you were actually as in students, like you have to write a lot of different things and you do like a daily copying of some of these insights and put them into a commonplace book. So it's something that I actually really enjoy since I was in school. And I was very into writing Chinese essays and that actually practice was super helpful for me to elevate my writing skills. So I kind of wanted to apply the same methods to my English writing. So I created a small pocket commonplace book before lockdown and COVID. And I used to carry that with me to work. And then when I have like a spare moment or something that instead of looking at my phone, I'll look at my commonplace book as a way to remind myself of some of these things that I wrote. I really speak to me and yeah, it helps me kind of recall and like reflect back more on these and then also just less time on your phone, which is always maybe good. <laughs> um, yeah, so I really enjoyed that practice. And I think there are more digital savvy versions of that practice now that you can maybe sync some of your say Kindle highlights into somewhere else that brings everything into one doc. So yeah, there are digital version of it, but I still sometimes prefer to look at a kind of a physical commonplace book. So that's kind of my, my practice. Cool. My mind is now spinning how I could incorporate this into my paper way of organizing my thoughts. Uh, yeah. Thank you very much. Very helpful. <laughs> of course. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Happy uh, to. Let me get us to the main topic of the season, which is intuition. Mm. What is your relationship with intuition? First time I got asked this, it's amazing question. I mean, it's, you can ask yeah. so many. I'm thinking, oh my God. <laughs> I think that for me, I 
don't use intuition as much as I've liked in my practice. So I coach and I also make art and paint. I have been learning to use intuition more in my coaching practice, which means that a lot of times when you're sitting in a conversation with your client and hearing what they're saying, it's not really about the problems and what they're talking about. It's if you were to using your tuition, it's more about sensing how they're feeling, what energy level they are, and then beyond the words, their body language and their gestures and just kind of the small things that you're using your intuition to really kind of comprehend how they're feeling. I think that is something as a coach that I am still learning and to lead more with my intuition to trust that. Of course, there are tools and strategies and more analytical things that you can bring to these conversations that could be also very helpful. But I do believe that in these type of conversations. And a lot of times it's just really about like put a mirror in front of them and to really help them see themselves more clearly and to maybe make some observation and reflect back to them. I think your energy just light up when you were talking about this vision about your business, just really kind of using your intuition to sense that and to bring that awareness to them. And that requires definitely intuition um, and not analytical thinking. So that's something on my coaching practice, I've been learning to incorporate. And in my art practice, I think I have been much more in my head all the time Mm. with making things. Before COVID, I've been doing a lot of uh, figure drawings, figurative drawings in uh, live drawing studios. And I've been doing that for almost two years. And every week we go there and we sit there for three hours and draw like um, basically figures. It's something that I've have really learned to observe about myself. And I noticed that when my head was taking the lead, you know, I was thinking, okay, I'm going to draw it this way. Usually it does not work out very well. (laughs) And you can see that I was thinking and my lines were not fluid and not clear. And then some of my best work, the work that I'm most happy with, are the ones that I did not think at all. I was just looking at the model, just like do whatever I need to do and just kind of let my hands and my body and lead that way. It was always much, much better. That's something that I learned through my art practice. And I wanted to do more of that in my future practice. Different nations have different relationship or different cultures have different relationship with intuition. We've been talking to an Argentinian who discussed the connection between shamanism and intuition in the Argentinian cultures. We've been talking to some people who are talking about more matriarchal family, which embraces intuition versus more patriarchal families that much more embrace logic and analytical thinking. And I'm curious, what's the relationship with intuition in China, in the Chinese culture? Is it something that is being nurtured or is it something that's being maybe suppressed a bit? And of course, I know that we are talking about the country, which is like super huge. So I obviously I'm making a major, major generalization here, which is terrible. But I'm just curious. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's an interesting question, because if I were to think about my journey of being in school and my education, you know, what is being encouraged? I don't think there is a lot of intuitive type of thinking that is really being championed in the classrooms because I think the reality is there are so many competitions in terms of so China has such a large population in, in schools and the main thing that you need to learn is to score high and to, you know, because that's the only way still to measure your capabilities, unfortunately, right? Mm -hmm. So that basically contributed to how 
students are being encouraged to learn and they are maybe learning for the benefit of, okay, if you do this, you're going to get the correct answers more likely, right? <laughs> Something like that. It's not about you're going to like follow your heart and your intuition. It's, it's less about that, unfortunately. And I think part of that contributed to maybe Chinese students' traditional education systems doesn't really encourage a lot of maybe creativity. Yeah, there's less room for that. And I, I definitely believe that intuitive thinking very much connects to creativity. And um, I believe that's maybe partially why a lot of these great design schools or art schools, they're not in China because like a lot of people still go out to study. And that's partially why I branched out and because I wanted to be able to experience the different types of education and to train myself to think in a different way because that wasn't the type of thinking that was encouraged or celebrated as much in a more uh, traditional educational environment. Mm -hmm. uh, but I believe now beyond the maybe the traditional schools, I think if you look beyond that, like just look at maybe the internet industry, tech industry in China. I don't know if you pay attention or not, but the past 10 years has been just revolutionary in terms of the internet development within China. And I actually think there's a lot of creativity there. I'm not sure how much of that was sprouted in school, <laughs> but it's maybe more about like the environment itself. And there's so much opportunities and people are using technology in a very different way now. I do see a lot of creativity there. Like TikTok, everybody knows that first basically started in China. That's a Chinese company and they have their own version of it like for a long, many years before TikTok become more popular outside of China. So like there are a lot of different unique ways that I think people are making innovation in China. And, and I think a lot of it is maybe actually more focusing on understanding the maybe the desire and the needs of what people want and I think in many of that maybe is kind of following more on the intuition side and you know what people really want to see and how do they want to use their technology and what's the job they're trying to get done like how do they want to feel when they use the technology maybe they want to feel entertained they want to feel amused or they want to feel like they can express themselves so like all of that I think kind of started to really open up some a new landscape, I think, about how innovation works, especially in the technology space in China. So I think that's super exciting. And for me, just watching it 10 years before and 10 years now, it's very, very like a night and day difference, like just how fast and how many different ideas and startups are really starting off and making really interesting experiments. If you were to think about intuition and leadership, what's the role of intuition in being a leader? I think it's a type of thinking that as leaders, we underestimate how important it can be. We are so trained to feel like we had to analyze so much and really weigh the pros and cons and be rigorous and be analytical we do so much of that already. But I believe a lot of times, especially if you are people leader and you, you talk to people all the time, people are not machines, right? Like you can maybe use your analytical mind to code and to do all that, that works out really well for you. But if you work with people in your day-to-day -day basis, you can't just try to use a computer mind to analyze them. You still need to follow your intuition and to really understand how they're feeling and what they need. That's super important. And I think a great leader knows when how to have a balance between their analytical mind and their like intuitive mind. And they know also by intuition when to use what type of thinking, or also when to ask the right question to encourage the other person to think from their heart or think from their gut feeling, right? So I think sometimes, when we face some more complex decisions, you know, for example, some of my clients, they maybe have a few very great job offers and they're very excited to think about, okay, 
all of these are really good. All the numbers laid out there, all the pros and cons laid out there. So like, how do I make this decision, right? <laughs> That's like the very much like analytical mind of thinking about this. But if you are thinking about it in an intuitive way, maybe it's more about like, what does your gut say about this? Which one do you feel more aligned? Just thinking about being in that environment. These are the questions we don't ask often. But if you do, I think a lot of times you will get that clarity much quicker. Yeah, it just tap into that conscious intelligence. I think intuition is, I think, a form of intelligence. And it is something that we could start to maybe practice more and access that more intentionally and to use that. So I think it's just, yeah, for leaders, being able to rely on both analytics and intuition helps leaders to make more aligned decisions, not just within yourself, but also like for your team to help them also make more aligned decisions. And that makes you more effective. Cool. So if you were to think about inspirations of artists or designers who follow intuition, who would they be? One artist that I love, who's also from China, and he's a very well-known traditional Chinese painter. Her, his name is Zhang Daqian. He has this practice. He named it as heart to hand. So he basically is known for pouring ink onto a canvas, very much following that intuition of trusting where the ink will go and instead of trying to manipulating it to force it into some type of presentation, right? So he just really have this practice and then it kind of follows the heart and then let this paint just express on the canvas. And the work itself is just very expressive and very free. And I think that's the type of art practice I'm trying to incorporate is sometimes just, yeah, like, let go of where you think you want to end up. <laughs> just kind of like let your intuition lead and trust the process. And I think that's super inspiring. Have you tried his uh, method yourself? I have tried some degree, but it's kind of messy. So like, uh -huh. I don't have a studio right now because I recently moved. So once I have a studio space and I'll probably do more of those experiments. But besides art, fine artists, I think dancers improvise all the time. And that is basically following their body and their intuition. That it's probably also a very great example of how you can trust your body to kind of make great things and to express yourself. It probably refers even more to people just dancing in a club or at the party, right? Because I assume if you're a professional dancer, part of that routine or maybe all of it is scripted and it's the nuances that you throw in. But if you think about just an average person in a club having good time, that's pure improvisation all the time. That's true. Yeah. An expression it is. Of you're following your intuition, right? Oh. You're following the music. Yeah. You're not thinking hard about where you need to do. It's just living in the moment. That's about it. That, yeah. Okay. And if you were to think about the book that either talks about intuition or inspires intuitive thinking, or you intuitively would like to recommend to our <laughs> listeners <laughs> just to go <laughs> broad here. Because we need three, yes. <laughs> no, we need one. <laughs> we need three uh, questions. <laughs> no, one book, just yeah. one book. Yeah, what would it be? There's this book that I've been reading a lot last year. I think I had really helped me stay grounded. It's this book called Inward by author named uh, Jan Preblo. I think he's a, a Hispanic writer. And the book, it's a collection of poetry and quotes that explores self-love and um, letting go and just like the wisdom that comes when we truly get to know ourselves. He was having this way of articulating some of those feelings and words in a very precise way. I was really connecting to it. Yeah, so for anyone who's like interested in reflecting or find something that's a leisure to read and to reflect upon, I think that uh, Inward by Yum Favlo would be a good book. 
And if you were to think about the most intuitive decision of your life, what would it be? Mm -hmm. <sighs> most intuitive decision, like last year, I did leave my job unexpectedly and I basically had a little bit of time to reflect upon what I want to do next. And I think to me, there was very much like following my heart, that type of approach, because this is kind of like, finally I have this moment to maybe reset and to really think about yeah, if I were to really choose for myself, what do I want to use this time for? Becoming a coach uh, and to work with people that I love to support women of color and underrepresented minorities. So that kind of really guide me into, okay, now I can just do this, but in the open and really serve more people potentially. So I think that is a very much a following my gut feeling and my intuition decision because the rational mind maybe will try to convince me like, oh, but then you're not going to get this as much or you're not going to have that as much if you compare this approach to your old life, this is how much you're going to lose. And this is whatever, you know, so there might be a lot of that that would just hold me back. I was very much following where my heart wants me to go and uh, how I am feeling in that time. Because I, I believe that I need a reset and I want to explore this different avenue of creating a business and not have my identity completely tied to say an employer mm -hmm. and I think that's something I've always been interested in exploring but wasn't able to because I was an international worker and I need to have a visa and I didn't even can't afford that but now that I can and I believe that was almost like a, a release some kind of a liberty of, of now I have this chance to really explore this so I just decided to do it. Yuan, thank you very much for the conversation, for your time and for yeah, your insight. such a lovely time just chatting. Best of luck with this new intuitive decision that you took last year with your career. It's been a journey, it's an adventure, and I'm really enjoying all that has, has to offer so far. So it's been a great experience. And, What's uh, a yeah, thank you so much for having me. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation with you both. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Catching the Next Wave podcast. We would love to hear from you on Twitter at Malka6 and at DLS6. You can find more details on www.catchingthenextwavepodcast.com. That's my quick story.